Hello, and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, R.T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick from the golden age to now. I have been reading comic books for over 40 years, and have never lost my passion for comic books. Something I try to pass on to old and new readers. It's Monday, February 19th, 2023, and you're probably checking out the podcast for the first time because you found out Phil Hester is my guest this time around. I don't need to say much about Phil because his work speaks volumes. He's been around in the industry for decades. I am extremely grateful to give him on the podcast. Our conversation is different than what you might expect from a creator. One of the mandates with the guests is to find new talking points, make it fresh for the creator and fans. So I'm hoping you'll be pleasantly surprised with what you listen to. Many things about this particular podcast show stands out. Most shows are usually bite-sized, around 20 minutes, sometimes a little longer. Not usually. There's exceptions like this week where I have a lot of giant shows lined up. I don't cover the latest comics. There's too many fantastic podcasts out there that do that. And I often dig around for gems that I think deserve a little more attention. So feel free free to scroll through the podcast feed. You'll find that I tap with comics from the golden age through the past few years. Another thing you'll see me do a lot of is Kickstarter campaigns. I can tell you they're covered. Supporting them is key to the industry's future. Tomorrow's big stars often come from these Kickstarter campaigns. If you're a regular listener, I'm glad you decided to stick around, and I hope you can do so moving forward. But those regular listeners also knew I pretty much vanished for several weeks. My podcast schedule totally blew up. Sometimes the life of a podcaster is hard to balance with real-life things. For me, I had a couple of 60-hour work weeks, followed by a short hospital stay, about a week. But hey, folks, I am doing much better. No worries. I'm here to stay. I need a little time to get back to where I need to in my life and slowly start sifting through the rubble of this podcast and figure out what to do next. I do need to do two shout-outs. One is to one of my favorite podcasters, Ross Aitken from Stop, Let's Team Up. He's a frequent guest on the show, and I often guest at his show. Recently, well, not so recently now, we've had to take this break, we talked about Justice League of America 171 and 172, which tells Tells the tale of the death of the first Mr. Terrific, Terry Sloan. This is one of my favorite JLA, JSA team-ups from the Bronze Age. And I recently guested on another podcast, Magazines and Monsters, episode 58, where we talked about Strange Adventures number 9, 1951. It's the origin of Captain Comet. Billy D, like Ross, runs a fantastic podcast. You need to check that out also. And you'll find links to their shows in my show notes. Again, let me repeat, I am not going anywhere. I'm doing the podcast too much to let it go. I have some fantastic plans in the coming months. Oh, and while you're looking at those podcast notes, you'll find a link tree on the Fantastic Comic Fan. So please follow the podcast on social media, subscribe to the podcast, because I want the podcast to continue to grow. And as I said, Introduce fans to a different way of covering and discovering comic books. Now on to today's show. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a 
unique and special guest today, Phil Hesterat. Yes, folks, it is the Phil Hester. He's currently uh, doing the pencils for Gotham City Year One, which is written by Tom King, and inks by Eric Gasper. I hope I said that right. So before we start, Phil, thank you for joining me. And I always ask the new guest, what was your comic book origin story? So how did you get into comic books growing up, Phil? Oh, gosh. Well, thanks for first, thanks for having me. Um, Eric's last name is Gapster. Gapster. I meant to ask you that before because I'm terrible with names, so it's I apologize. It's, it's, when you see it there, it's easy to just say Gasper. He's used to people saying Gasper, okay. but it's Gapster, as in Napster. Okay. Um, but um, I, I got into comics creatively, I think the same way most people do, at, as a consumer first. And uh, I grew up in the age of the pre, the right before comic shops became popular. So, you know, I was buying my comics at 7-Eleven and Safeway and TG&Y and in those three packs. And um, uh, the, the Whitman's, the Whitman variant type kind. You remember Whitman's? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. That's how I disco- That's how I discovered. Um, well, modern is how I discovered my Charlton books, those modern reprints. Yes, I remember those. I'd forgotten them, but yes, I love those things. Yeah. And a lot of them, um, and a lot of DC books, I think a lot of my early issues of Brave and the Bold are actually the Whitman reprint versions. Okay. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was a, um, I was that kid on his bike taking his paper route money down to, you know, the quick trip to, to look for comics. And back then, before comic shops, every every foray out to buy comics was sort of a treasure hunt. You didn't know what you were going to find. Exactly. You could not depend on getting the next issue of a book. So everything felt really special. I mean, also the fact that you're like 11. But uh, every time you went out to buy a book, each one of them felt like a special gift. And... Um, that magic that I felt when I was buying comics off the newsstand uh, was something that uh, like touched me on a level that like no other art form did except maybe going to the movies but that was like a bigger shared experience and comic books were like they combined the spectacle of film with the personal relationship you have with like reading a novel and to me that was like this kind of crazy alchemy that I've been pursuing ever since into my professional career. You know, I love the comic shops and direct market and the 24 seven news services, but you're right. Today's kind of lost a little of that bit of that magic where you go in there and you don't know what you're going to get this week. And you discover so many cool comic books and you find reasons you didn't think you were fine when you were 10 and 11 and 12 years old. I don't know about you, Phil, but anything that my golden age of comic books, I started like 77 in, through 1980 Anything in that gap is like golden to me. I don't care, care how bad the comic book might seem to be. <laughs> yeah. It is like, it just shines, you know, no matter what. And people go, what? I'm like, well, that's my golden stuff. So, yeah. and, and, and I constantly go back even, I bet you go back and reveal those comic books a lot of times too, don't you? Oh so, yeah. Like, uh, I think we have the same like time when we became like. Mine was 77 uh, is when I started that same for me. That was I was eleven then, and that's when I became sort of an active comic buyer. And yes. before that, I was like scrounging here and there for my uncles and cousins and stuff. And 
when I was 11, I had like lawn mowing money and I thought, oh, you know, like I can buy stuff now. But um, the, the thing that I find is like, I'm really intrigued by the books that I just missed. Like the books that were coming out like yes. from 74 to 76. I'm like, what was going on there? Cause like everyone knows about the sixties that's all well-preserved and well rep, you know, represented in reprints. But I want to know about the the stuff that fell through the cracks in the in the mid seventies. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, the digital stuff, and Marvel does a great job of finding like the Bronze Age and stuff. But then on the DC side, some of their stuff is like, oh, and I would love to read this stuff, not just for me because I believe Bill, and I'm sure you would agree with us that every age of comic books has golden gems that stand up through now and deserve to be read and enjoyed, no matter how many years they are old. Oh yeah, I think they're. I mean. Uh, I, I I think that's true of like through today. There's great stuff coming out. There was great stuff coming out. Like <laughs> like I'm read right now. I'm reading this tomorrow's book about the history of Charlton Comics. Tomorrow's is a great public or uh, great company to do stuff. I've got the that exact same thing. I've got it. I've been trying to get through it. It is yeah. a great, fantastic read. Anything to do tomorrow's you cannot miss. Right. And the, the point I'm trying to make with that is Charlton didn't, didn't care one lick about the, their product, but magic was still happening there. So like in every era, even under the weirdest business circumstances or the vagaries of the market, comic still manages to produce these gems um, that come straight from another creator's imagination and people, and I think it's, like the closest thing we have to magic that we can make those connections with people um, as creators to readers and vice versa. So yeah, there's always magic happening in comics. I I found another fellow Charlton fan. I call Charlton Comics the little the little engine that could because they started off in the golden age and went straight through to like 1985 and put out yeah. all these wonderful comic books that are hard to get now. And you know they had great stuff. And a lot of creators got their start in Charlton Comics. John Byrne, uh, yep. Giordano, Steve Ditko made it for a home for years. But let's go back to you, Phil, because this is actually, you're the guest here. So uh, how did you get into the industry? And was com creating comic books something you always thought as a kid, hey, I think I'm going to do this one day. Yeah, I, like? think, I think from about 12 or 13 on, I got, because I'd always been, I'd always got attention for my drawing you know, in elementary school. So, and I always love to make up my own stories. So comics seemed like a real natural way to express myself. And at about age 12 or 13, I thought, well, maybe I can do this. And all the way through junior high and high school, I found some like-minded friends and we started producing comics just for our own entertainment. And we took it really seriously. We had deadlines and, you know. That's very cool, yes. Yeah. And we, we made a whole line of books and that was like a good training ground for what was to come. Because when I went into, when I went to college to get my BFA, um, I kept, I stayed making those kind of like semi-pro comics with my friends. And luckily, uh, sort of my sophomore year in college was when the turtles dropped and blew up. And so like, all of a sudden overnight, there were just like, uh, we, you know, just we went from like a dozen publishers to, you know, dozens of publishers. Yes. And they all needed talent. And 
I was really not ready for prime time, but I wanted to work. And these these publishers couldn't be picky. And so they could hire a 19 year old, you know, college student to draw comics. And I started drawing comics like that, um, like my that very next year, like my junior year in college. And they were like terrible, forgettable comics, but the, ex the experience was really thrilling to me. And um, the lessons I learned in that time were really invaluable. Yeah, you were, you know, uh, at Eternity, Malibu, First Comics, these Comic Caliber, which a lot of people don't remember anymore. And we have a lot of indie publishers now, uh, South Point Press, I think I said that correctly, Band of Fire, where Chuck Satterley is. But these smaller publishers, like where you got to start, they're so important, essential for the industry, because that's where tomorrow's stars come from, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really, there's a neat story about that, that um, I was at a, I was at San Diego when I was like, I think, not, I think 20. And I went to a panel that was about uh, black and white comics, like the back, black and white comics explosion that I was part of. And I went to it and it was not a pro black and white comics explosion panel. It was an anti-black, you know, because oh, okay. there was a lot of crap that came out from that time period. And the panel was made up of all this like, you know, high-minded comics intelligentsia just running down all these, you know, indie comics that were exploding, except for Will Eisner. Will Eisner was on the panel too. And Will Eisner is like kind of tamped everybody else down, you know, like, cause he's Will Eisner, he can do that. And he said, look, this is the first generation of comic book creators, like since the golden age, who are going to have to grow up in public because uh, uh, because they're just such a like a huge explosion of work all these young people are working and before like in the the 50s and 60s you paid your due dues as an assistant or you started off on some smaller obscure title or backup but not since the golden age were like people my age are getting pushed right onto a book and he goes in and Will Eisner said these are all people you're going to be working with in five or ten years and he was dead right. We, we, you know, the people that that hung in, um, you know, kind of grew up in front of everybody and and uh, eventually broke the big time. As an artist, what were some of the uh, influences that influenced your artwork? Do you have any big fans or artists that you were into? Oh, yeah. or um, well, I'd say the people that spoke to me when I was a kid the most were um, like Joe Staten on E-Man and uh, nice guy i met him one time he's a he's a nice guy i yeah. met him one time really sweet guy bernie Wrightson on swamp thing and ross andrew on spider-man and like all these like pretty much everything i saw at that age was like getting synthesized but then when i was 13 frank miller came on to daredevil and i sort of had this vague idea that like i had kirby ditko you know rights and all these guys swimming around in my head but then when I saw Frank Miller's Daredevil, I was like, that's the kind of comics I want to make. Like that kind of like really dynamic and muscular storytelling uh, spoke to me on like this kind of like primal level. And I was like, that's the kind of comic book artist I want to be or comic book creator in general because I wanted to write my own stories too. So yeah, Frank was Frank's my biggest influence. And, um, but you know, 
I, I, I read, I read so many comics when I was a kid that like, it's hard to tease out exact, like I count like thousands and thousands. Of and it's very hard to say, what was your favorite thing at the time? Or what's yeah. your favorite artist or, you know, there's, yeah. and you're right, there's so many, I like, you can't really pin that down very often. Yeah, it's really tough for me because like I was loving all sorts of different and there and even when I was really young, I was like into whatever kind of indie I could find, you know, like if it was a Warren magazine or if it was like uh, Pacific Comics, whatever, uh, uh, Comely Comics, Captain Canuck, like if I saw something new and different, I pounced on it because I was just so hungry to consume comics. And I feel like it's the same way. I remember the first comics shops came out. I remember the Noble comics where Justice Machine had their start and Captain Canuck, who people know now that back then, you know, you get those. And then, you know, Capital had where Nexus started with, you know, I think yeah. Steve Rude was doing it back then. And yeah, this was such amazing time. So I'm curious about your style before we start talking about what you're doing. Um, how has your style changed over the years? Or have you been pretty much filled all this time? No, I had this weird idea, like in my early 20s, that I would have, I would have two styles. And I don't know, it was a subconscious thing, probably. But I thought, well, part of me is going to try to draw like Alan Davis and Steve Rude, and, you know, be like a straight mainstream cartoonist. And I'm also going to have a career doing really weird stuff, you know, like, like collage and Bill Sienkiewicz and, you know, just really offbeat stuff. And so I, that was only for a couple of years that I had that notion. And then once I started working, I realized I wasn't, I couldn't separate out those two things. There was, a, especially on a, um, an early assignment I had at Dark Horse called Freaks Amour, which was an adapt, adaptation of a Tom DeHaven novel. And uh, it was a dark story. And I realized, oh, I'm gonna have to like take the things I learned the things I wanted to express in this weird style and the things I wanted to express in my straight style and merge those things. And that's sort of like the first time I drew like, I felt like I drew like me, you know, was on Freaks and More. And it sort of went on from there. And I think people, uh, I was lucky um, that I was either lucky or stubborn that I kind of, I kind of have this like kind of tweener style that's neither cartoony nor dark, but it's somewhere in, in between those places. Okay. And um, it's it's always got this kind of like intractable bounciness to it, but at the same time, it's always dark edged. And I, you know, we talked about it earlier, but I think it's cause my world, you know, the North Pole is Joe Staten and the South Pole is Bernie Wrightson. And it's like, I'm, I'm always trying to synthesize those two impulses in my own vision, you know? So you're currently drawing, like I said, Gotham City year one. How do you decide what projects that you want to be in? Because you are a top artist and people love your work and you could pretty much go anywhere and do almost anything you want to do. How do you pick your projects? I, I don't feel that way. I don't, um, like I sort of, I, I, I don't know. I, I probably should consider what my position in the industry is more than I do, but in my mind, I'm still that 21 year old trying to break in. So when, when people bring me projects, I'm always like surprised, <laughs> you know, like, okay. okay. You know, so like, um, 
But if I look back on like the last, uh, you know, 10 or even 20 years of my life, I haven't really gone looking for work. Your work's come to me. Always come to you. Yeah, which is cool. Um, But I have to say that like I've been really like I haven't been stuck with anything I didn't want to do. Like everything that people have approached me about has I found something about it that was exciting or fun to do. And um, and I think that started probably about the time of Green Arrow. And that was at the turn of the century. And uh, I have to thank Bob Shrek and Kevin Smith for for like look because at that time I, I was still like definitely a tweener. Like I was like doing vertigo work, but I wasn't really doing DCU work you know, a few things here or there or, or Marvel work. I was kind of like this guy that was like, not quite cool enough for Vertigo, but too weird for DC. And uh, so I was like kind of stuck in the middle and thankfully Shrek and, and Kevin, you know, pushed me into the spot, me and Andy Parks into the spotlight with Green Arrow. And we just kind of wore people down from there. And I think like, we're like, look, Neil Adams isn't going to come. Neil Adams isn't coming back. Um, this is what Green Arrow looks like now. And, you know, like if you stick around, people will, you know, either warm up to your style or write you off. And thankfully, more people than not warmed up to my style and, and saw me as a viable artist for other projects. So Chuck Satterley, who we know, he does a lot of writing himself. He's doing Monsters and Midways currently. He always praises your work and says, this is some of your best work that you're doing for Gotham City. You're like, now... Do you actually, does that type of praise actually register with you? Or are you just like, I'm just drawing the stuff and just trying to do the best work that I can? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I have to admit, I'm hearing it more in this book and that's gratifying to me because um, uh, the Ben Abernathy and Tom King um, are tr- trusting me to take more chances with that work. And um, I think it's paying off. I'm like... I'm experimenting more with how I handle layouts and, um, you know, I'm rendering in a a very like harsh, you know, high contrast style that I've kind of always had, but can really cut loose on this project. Um, But to me, the real, the real like advances in my work that I'm making on this project have to do with storytelling devices that I haven't been able to use previous. So you, so you find it challenging and kind of invigorating to be actually to do something kind of different than what you've normally been yes. doing? Yeah. Um, it's uh, like, don't get me wrong, though. I love to draw like, like right before this, I was drawing Justice League. And it was, you know, believe me, I love drawing, you know, Superman pounding a tank into the ground. That's cool. It's fun. Do you have a, do you have a dream project maybe one day that you would like to possibly do? that you haven't oh, done yeah. yet? Oh yeah, I was, I have a huge list of that. Um, and I think the challenge for somebody in the back half of their career, the way I am is- Oh, to, oh Phil, you are not in the back half of your <laughs> career. You've got well, so, so I, much I, I've got a, Sure, I've got a lot to do, but if I'm being realistic, um, you know, I'm probably only got 20 years of, of drawing comics left in me. And you're realistic um, and you're, and you're, you are probably right, you know, yeah. and you want to, you want to make and make that time be the best. You're not 19 anymore. You want right. to do stuff. Not that you're trying to make the fans really great, but you want to some, something that Bill Hester 
can be looked back and say, you know what, I did a gosh darn good job and I'm really, you know. Yeah, I, I, um, when I was 19, I was happy to do anything. Like I was just happy to be involved in comics at all. Like one of my first regular gigs was drawing Ghostbusters. And like, I'm so, I mean, and in the animated style. And that's like, not for me, but I was just happy to be working. And that was exciting and fun to me then. And now I've got it. Now I'm trying to think about stuff that like, well, where can I stretch out? Where can I like show what I've learned? What's a project that can push me into new territory? Instead of the same old thing that you did. Yeah. And Gotham City has definitely been that for me. And um, it's definitely the biggest thing I've done since Green Arrow for sure. And um, as an artist anyway. And I think probably what, if I do work for the next, for another 20 years, I probably want to integrate my writing and drawing a little bit more, do, do both. Because like I said, when I saw Frank Miller, I thought that's the kind of creator I want to be. And since that time in my career, I've had a, I've had a career as a writer. I've had a career as an artist, but very few times have I done both on the same project. And I'd like to probably focus on that more. Now, we are talking, us other fans, was talking about different anchors that have done your stuff. Gapster, Parks. Do you have a favorite anchor or, and how does it, how, do you have any, do you have any say in who actually gets to ink your project? I mean, because you are the world famous Bill Hester here. So I'm being <laughs> facetious a little bit, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I kind of want to know, like, behind the scenes a little bit, you know, do you guys have like a, a, a wheel of fortune? We just kind of spin it and that's the, uh, <laughs> anchor for the project no i um i could i didn't have that say until about 20 years ago so i would say both andy and i broke in at dc in the 90s in the mid 90s but we were separate like he was off inking wonder woman or catwoman and i'm off over here drawing swamp thing or you know other little you know, side miniseries and things. And we were not be allowed, we were not allowed to put to be put together because back then editorial, each editorial office had kind of more of an aesthetic voice about the kind of books they produced. So like, you know, Mike Carlin was like, oh, I need somebody slick for this, or I need somebody gritty for this. And the idea of putting Andy and I together, it was almost like we hadn't earned our chops yet. So they wouldn't, put us together we did indie stuff together but at the big two we weren't allowed to not till green arrow and then since green arrow it's been a lot easier like people think of andy and i as a team and and so we're just people just assume that andy would ink my work and that continued up until about 10 years ago when andy decided to andy's a really talented writer so he decided to back off of inking so much and spend more time writing and so I needed a regular, I needed a regular inker. And I'd been um, mentoring Eric Gapster since he was like a student at Iowa State. And he's a really talented writer and cartoonist in his own right as well. But I knew he wanted to kind of crack the comic book industry. So, you know, he spent like a good six months learning how to ink me before he jumped in. And, and ironically, the very first thing we did together was... Um, uh, a Slam Bradley story for Legends of the Dark Knight. And now here we are 10 years later working on Slam Bradley again. 
you know, the fan press, you know, we got 24-7 news like for the fan press and all these things, we got conventions, and and I'm, it's great, and creators kind of get this celebrity status, but what's it like for Phil Hester's work day when it's like, okay, I've got to start today, which, you know, I know it's not all glamour and greatness, but how does your, how does your work day start, and what's it like, and I mean, people put, just look at your creator and go, oh, wow, so wonderful, and you're like, well, no, I've got these things and whatever. But we were going to take last week and you had corrections to do and stuff and whatever. But what's it like for Phil Hester, the creator, for your work day? I do. I think the hardest thing for any creator is managing your time. Um, because I think almost no matter how painstaking your drawing style might be, I think everybody's pencil to paper time is about the same. You know, it's your it's your butt to seat time that's different. And um, at, when you're 20, it's easy to clear the decks and just say, I'm gonna draw for 20 hours. Um, but once you start to have kids and- Responsibilities have, and yes. Once you have a household to run, uh, once you have, like my kids are grown now and out of the house, but I'm, you know, I'm taking care of my mother-in-law now. And since I don't have a quote unquote real job, you know, she lives next door. I'm over there a lot, you know, um, and they're just, and they're more, I belong to some civic organizations and things like that. They're just more demands on your time, the older you get. And it's always going to be that way. Um, so the, the very, very hardest part about my work day is blocking off time where I can be completely alone. Um, that's especially important for writing, I think, is to be completely alone. Um, I can draw with other people around, but um, so yeah, my work day is like, uh, I don't play video games. I don't, you know, I might read a little Phil, bit. I'm disappointed in you. Just went way down on my, my, my respect for you. No video games? Gosh, Phil, no. My idea of my, like, well, yeah, I play, I played video games, the kind you stand up in front of and put money in. Um, but uh, I... Uh, my workday is pretty much from about nine to four. And then my wife's home from her job and I become a house husband then. And, you know, it's about cooking. And then, um, you know, when she goes, she usually, she's a teacher. So she has to get up early. So she goes to bed early and I sneak out of bed and I work for a couple more hours. And you know, you're, you're, Phil, you're destroying this image that all kind of creators, this, these racks, these rock star images that people yeah, think about. <laughs> No, no, I no. Um, yeah, I sort of like have always been on the fringes of that. Like, I was around with during the boom times, and everybody got rich, and I didn't get rich, but I, I've had a nice, comfortable life. But and you enjoy uh, what you're doing. You're still yeah. being challenged. So, speaking of being challenged, you um, got into inking. Why did you start to ink? And do you ever ink your own work? I mean, you got you got enough you got enough going on with penciling that you decide you wanted to be inker. Yeah, I. I think it's more about a time issue for me because I would rather spend the limited time I have writing and penciling. Like if I, if I had my druthers, I would just write and lay out books. I'm not really high on the way I draw. So like the actual rendering process is not as crucial to me as the layout process and, and designing a page. To me, that's more thrilling. Like uh, I always say, if I had my dream job, I'd have, Harvey Kurtzman's job at EC when he wrote and laid out stories and handed them off to other fantastic artists to finish. Um, but 
so inking is like a, it takes me longer to ink a page than it does to pencil it. Um, it takes my inkers much less time to ink my pages than it did for me to pencil them. But when I have to ink them, it takes me longer. Is there I a reason just, why? Yeah, is there a reason why? Yeah, uh, the, way I, the way I physically move a pencil is not a way somebody can physically move a pen or a brush. I reuse really slashing, move, slashing movements and kind of blocky shapes that are not amenable to the modern inking style. So when I go to ink my own work and I try to replicate the mark making that I do with my pencil, it can't really, you've got to be much more careful than I am. And so occasionally I feel like I can ink my work if it's like maybe a horror story or like a cutting edge kind of artsy story, I can do that. But I'm never going to be able to ink like Iron Man. You know what I mean? Like I'm right. never going to be doing something that demands that slick advertising uh, aesthetic that is prevalent in big two comics. So um, yeah, I, I have a lot of friends that tell me they love when I ink my own work. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so what about Phil Hester, the writer? You like to write, what possessed you to, to write and what would you like to write in the future? How's that? I mean, you know, what's, and what's the writing like for Phil Hester? And would you, uh, go on, tell me. Yeah, no, I, I just see them as, I never saw writing as separate from art. I saw them as the same continuum of storytelling. So um, it, it became, when I, I think when I was writing Swamp Thing, it was clear to me that like I had, I had stories I wanted to tell that I wasn't going to have time to draw. And um, so, and I knew, and working in comics, you meet a lot of cool artists and there are people you want to collaborate with. So I started writing for other artists and, you know, creating books and that feeling was just so in intoxicating that I wanted to keep doing that as well. So I'm almost to, to this point in my career where I feel like drawing comics is my day job and writing comics is my, you know, my moonlighting. Um, Are you writing anything right now? I'm always writing something. There's nothing out right now that I'm writing. But, but do you have stuff planned possibly in the future? Oh yeah. I've, I've got, okay. I will not live long enough to do all my projects. Like I have a, when I was like in my twenties, I started this like, like, I don't know what people call it, like a, a goal wall, you know, like here are things I'm going to get done. Here are these projects I'm going to knock off each year. And each year I knocked off a project. And then add 10 more. <laughs> yeah. It would hydra, you know, it would hydra me and there'd be another one in its place. And I'm like, and so like I turned 56 this year and I was looking at, it, I'm like, my list isn't getting smaller. <laughs> like, you know, my time, my time on earth is getting smaller, but my list isn't getting smaller. So I, I try to take a little bit more. Um, I try not to be as uptight about like being on schedule with my career and just say, I got to wait for the right time or the right collaborator to do this project. And also sometimes like I become a better creator for a project than I was when I thought it up. Like I have this really big, like, ensemble cast kind of big idea comic book that I want to do and I got the idea for it like seven years ago and I wasn't a good enough writer to do it then and I might not be now but I'm closer <laughs> so like you know sometimes things have to marinate and um, that's one good thing being 
you know, drawing for 35 years, being in comics for 35 years has taught me is that if something is really special, like it'll come around and it'll work out and you'll get to do it. So you've been doing this for 35 years. Are you surprised as you, as you're looking back that you are first as successful as you are, that you've learned so much and that you're having so much fun doing all these things and still being, being creatively challenged after all this time. I just threw a mouth out there. Yeah. I apologize. No, I thought I would be better. <laughs> well, for one thing, I thought I'd be better at it. Than I am now. So like, I thought I would have, I thought I would have, have it all nailed down by now, which is both disappointing and exciting. I'm, I'm so glad I don't have it nailed down. I'm so glad I'm learning stuff because there, uh, there are a lot of creators that like, sort of like peak when they're 26 and, and, that's like, it. and they sort of become, they sort of fi finish their career doing the same thing over and over again or being a parody of themselves. And I, I sort of have this, like, like, if you never peak, you never have to go back down. <laughs> so like, I'm always like, um, I'm always on this like gentle curve up, I think, instead of like this meteoric rise, I'm, I'm slowly learning things. And um, as I get older, my eye becomes more critical about what I'm doing. So uh, like I said, that 20 year old, 21 year old that was ready to do anything, he's gone. And now I'm a person that like applies, my, applies that critical eye back to my own projects. And so I can look at this and say, mm, I would have done this when I was 20 or even 30, but I'm not going to do it now. Or I, to make it interesting me, to me, I'm going to have to rework it. So yeah, that's the challenges that aren't stopping, which is cool to me. And it's probably the most exciting thing about being a creative person uh, is that if you're doing it right, it's like, you're going to die frustrated, which is beautiful. <laughs> you know. So we're both bronze age babies. I'm about to, I'm also 56. And you and I remember that before the internet and 24 seven news sites, we had things like the comic creator, uh, uh, the buyer's guy, which became the comic buyer's guy later on amazing heroes and comics interview. And then wizard as a creator coming up, how did you get noticed? And was it important for you? Like, Oh, look, I'm this creator in this, or do you like, eh, it's kind of okay. Yeah, how was that like for you? I wasn't that hung up on that stuff. I mean, it was partially because like um, I got a hold of an issue of Comics Journal when I was like pretty young. And I love my girl. I love my girl's warlord. That was like my favorite comic. Well, not my favorite favorite, but among my favorite comics. And I, I, I cracked open an issue of Comics Journal and I was like, oh boy, a whole comic about how much people love comics. I mean, a whole magazine about loving comics. And it was not about loving comics. Right. <laughs> like the whole letter call was like tearing up Mike Grell's use of Zipatone in his books. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like it's not all, it's not a huge bed of roses when you become a famous cartoonist. So I didn't, I was sort of dissuaded of the notion that it was you know, like I was going to be a superstar someday. And also what I'm the same age as a lot of the image guys or the, the guys on the younger end, I'm closer to like Jim Lee's and, and Rob's age, you know, I'm, um, and I saw like their kind of crazy rise 
and it looked cool. The money looked cool, but like, I'm good. Like, not not the yeah. constant attention that you know, like not the the hyper focus on them didn't seem like it was that much fun. So it wasn't like worth the price of admission to actually have all that for for Phil Hester. I mean, it's good for these other guys. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I would like to a little bit of it, but like, like, but like having not being able to like walk a con floor seemed very like like not fun to me. Um, but um, I, I got I want to I maybe I'm rationalizing, but I feel like I got just enough of that, like you know, enough that like I hear from people that appreciate my work, but not so much that like I have enemies or, you know, right. Or you don't get, you don't get caught up in that yeah. crazy controversial stuff. And now you guys are having, you know, contests over, you know, and, and just, you know, these, yeah, I know what you mean, Bill, yeah. uh, from a creator standpoint, cause now you're 35 years and things as new fans are just like read, the comments that came out the shop because they saw the new DC or Avengers movie or whatever with the internet and podcasts. And we talked about the 24 seven news cycles. How is it different with interacting with the fans and the press and all that stuff? You know, how has it changed and different? And do you think it may be better or worse than it used to be when we had like amazing heroes and the comic buyers guy that came up with like for the uninitiated comic buyer guys to be the weekly newspaper that everybody got and we all loved it. And I know every every fan, you had a subscription to that for years and oh, years yeah. and years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we looked for the, forward to that issue you know, every week. But how has that stuff, you know, in your mind changed and evolved? Is it better? We're, I get tired of the 24-7 news cycles. I was hands raised. When I see spoilers, I go right to the spoiler. And, <laughs> and if it's there, I'll read it. I'm terrible about that. And I wish I did it because I don't get surprised very much on any level with this TV or whatever. And to me, some of the magic's gone out of it. And yeah, it's like, but for you, how's it like with you as a creator? Well, to bring it full circle, the yeah. treasure hunt, the treasure hunt's gone now. Yes. Like anticipation's gone out of a lot of things, um, and that also has to do with like when you're a grown person, your life gets busier. You don't really can't really anticipate things; they sort of tumble in on you. Um, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty, I, I think it's a net positive, to be honest. I know a lot of people don't feel that way. Um, but I like to interact with fans on social media and I would say the positive to negative, it's like 10,000 to one, you know, like it's almost always positive because if people don't like your work, they're not going to interact with you for the most part. And even people that like kind of, you know, hector you or are a pain in the ass on lot with you in social media, like, you don't know what they're going through. Like maybe they're a kid, you know, you oh, don't know. That's, that's very true. You don't know what's going on in their lives and you, who cares, you so, know, whatever. So like, it's easy to let that stuff go and not get hung up about it. Um, so, but it's cool. Like I've made friends that way. You know, I mean, it's sort of like you make friends with people you meet at cons, you make friends with people you meet on Twitter or back in the day, like you met on the Bendis board or whatever. Like, um, I think that's all pretty neat. I, I don't, like I said, I'm, I, maybe I'm lucky um, in that my interactions are largely positive. Um, but I think that it has a little bit to do with the way I interact with people. Like I, I don't, 
I try not to treat people any different than I treat them in person. And I goes a long I, way. I, you know, I remember uh, back at the Chicago convention several years ago, and George Perez before he died was making his his last circuit, and it was so cool to see fans lined up for two hours. And I was not one of them. I wish it was. And it was he was such a generous, kind man. You know, he would every yeah. person come up, he put his arm around them, and he was such a friendly, nice guy, take the pictures and all that. And it was like that's you know that's cool that you know he would do that and people look again look at you look you're a rock star superstar creator and you guys are just human like everybody else yeah i mean it's sort of i feel like if those people are going to line up to talk to you for two hours like the least you can do is give them a hug and (laughs) appreciate their time because they're like they're giving you it's like it's not on the same level as like you know the love you receive from your family but they're they are giving you love and it's it's wrong not to reciprocate that in some way. At that s- same convention, I met Chris Claremont, and I swear I could sit down and just see like a little four year old and spend all afternoon listening to Chris Claremont talk stories because he was such a great you know you know I was like so a raconteur yeah you know and same same thing when I met Joe Staten years ago I'm like and, and I I wish I would have spent more time and you know you know hey Joe you. I remember you when I was a kid and you had such a huge influence on me as a reader because like you, comic books were frowned upon. Kids didn't read comic books. Libraries didn't have comic books. And that acted for you and for me as a gateway to so many worlds that we didn't even think would be existent. And those, like you said, Joe, and these other things, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't have comics as a kid. Obviously, you wouldn't be the same person because you wouldn't be an art, you know what I mean? But right, those right. comics influenced me so much growing up. Do you remember the first time you went to a comic convention as a creator offhand? Oh, as a creator. That's a great question. Um, I haven't, I haven't gone to too many cons as a non-creator first because for one thing, I'm from Iowa. Yes. And there's no- there's no cons around here, but I'd make the trek to that big Chicago con when it was at the Rosemont out by, you know. The uh, expressway. Uh, oh, but then near the O'Hare Airport, yes. Yeah, that giant, was it a Ramada? I think it was a Ramada. Yeah, that giant Ramada out by uh, O'Hare. And I would go to that one. I probably had done like three or two or three of those before I broke in. And in fact, that's where I did break in. I, um, I, uh, well, I broke it, actually, I broke into college through the mail, but, like, what I felt like I was breaking in when I got to do Ghostbusters, at that show, I, I got a sample script of Ghostbusters from a, because that, what was cool about that show is it used to have an editor room, and there were editors always in that room that would review portfolios, and you could just drop into that room and have your portfolio reviewed. And I had mine reviewed and one of the editors gave me a sample script and they said, yeah, you know, draw a couple of pages from this and send it in to me next week. And I went up to my hotel room and drew them that night and brought them and brought them down the next day and got hired. Um, and so I, like I said, I only did a handful of shows before that. Like I did like two or three Chicago's and one San Diego. And then I, I'm trying to think of like, where's the first, Oh, Probably a um, Kansas City before Planet Comic Con took over this comic scene down there. 
there was a comic book club down there and they had a show called MoCon, which stood for Missouri, Kansas. And it was a really cool show because they had a mix of established pros, retired old timers, and then up and comers. And Mike Worley, who ran that show, took pity on me, I guess, and gave me, <laughs> gave me a pro table. And so like in the early 90s, we went down there and I, I had a I had my first like guest table at a, at a convention. Was that exciting for you? I mean, was it? Oh, I mean, yeah. We over prepared for it. And like I, this was in the age before like um, those little pop up screens you could put behind your table. Yes. And so like I built one out of like pegboard. Me and my friends built like a trifold, like a, almost like a changing screen out of pegboard. And we hung our art on it. And like we went overboard. Like there's no way we broke even on that convention. Does Phil Hester still get the same excitement going to conventions as he did before? And I kind of want to know is like, you know, people whined and complained that the San Diego became too commercial and too this, and it's not as fan and creator and fun driven. How has it changed for you, Phil Hester, as a creator over the time? It, and do you, I'm sorry, and do you think conventions are necessary as a creator? Yeah, I do think they're necessary as a creator. Um, because you, you, anytime you can interact with readers, you, you, you cultivate them as future readers. Like if they have a good experience, they'll think, oh, I'm going to take a chance on that guy's book, you know? So I think it's important. It's also important to network with your peers um, somewhere other than the internet. And because people, you know, sometimes they don't think about you until you're right in front of them. They're like, oh yeah, you'd be good for this, you know? And that's, that's the kind of network you can only do at conventions. Um, I wouldn't, I still get excited by conventions. I have done a, I have done a lot of conventions. I'm not going to say thousands. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I've definitely done hundreds. And why? I mean, uh, I mean, that's, a, I mean, there's a difference between doing conventions and doing a lot like Phil Hester obviously has, but why? Yeah, you, don't have, you, you don't have to do that many, but obviously you do some why. Yeah, some people do one every weekend. I'm not that. I'm not that guy. Slacker. Um, <laughs> I am not. I'm not. I don't want to be a professional print monger. You know, I want to go meet people. I want to sign books. I want to speak on panels. Um, do you enjoy the panel stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And I like to. I like to. I sell my original art in person, so um, I don't have an art dealer. So it's that's another fun thing to do is interact with people that really want to buy your art. Um, but uh, I do get excited about it. I'm not, I don't, I won't say I'm jaded, but I have got to the point where like, I'm not <laughs> like with a lot of the bigger shows act like they're doing you a favor to like give you a table or bring you in. And I'm like, I can do enough. I can fill my calendar every year with shows that are inviting me. I'd much rather do like a show in Omaha that invites me and is excited about seeing me then apply for a table at New York. You know what I mean? So I'd rather do a, a smaller show where people appreciate seeing me than be one of, you know, one of a thousand guests at a, at a really large show. I still, I still really enjoy those larger shows, but the days of me applying to be at a show are over. Like I'm not, well, it should be, Phil. I mean, yeah. obviously, I, I, I want to go 
back for a second. I, uh, on my podcast, I'm really trying to, to really diversify and not cover things that everybody else covers because I really think there's great comics in there. And I've reached out uh, to Michael Northup. He's an all-ages writer. He did Dear, uh, Dear Justice League, and they had a sequel to that. Yeah. And I got really schooled when I had that taping. It just blew me away because I'm thinking, when you see those things, you think those are like, oh, those are for kids. No, they're, they're for you and me that we can enjoy them too. And I was so amazed at that. Now, you did one, correct me if I'm wrong, you did the inks on The Lost Carnival, a, the Dick Grayson graphic novel. Did yeah, you do that? I, I did one. I did work on that, but I didn't ink it. I laid it I'm out. I'm sorry. Okay. So how yeah. is my apologies? I didn't do my research. I apologize. Okay. Oh. No. How is it different working for like the DC all ages stuff than the normal, you know, right. stuff? It was I'm just a, curious. For me, in that case, it wasn't different at all because it, a lot of the same edit, they share a lot of the same editorial staff. So it was the same editorial teams that were hiring me to do main, mainline DCU stuff, hired me to come in and help out on that book. So it wasn't a huge difference at all. Would Phil Hester, either as artist or writer, be interested in doing something like the All Ages Project? In the oh, future? yeah. I've got, I've got a ton of All Ages ideas that I want to get through. One is very wild, and I'm going to try to push it through at DC next year. Um, but it's it's something that's really like I always felt like I wrote a book called Fire Breather um, about 15 years ago. And I always felt like that was sort of like just a little ahead of its time because it's kind of a middle grade reader's book. But the middle grade graphic novel genre didn't really exist then. Um, but uh, from raising kids and my wife being a teacher, I'm around kids a lot and, you know, hear about the things they deal with growing up and um yeah i've got a, a ton of comic book ideas that are aimed at that middle grade and lower age group because when we were growing up there was tons of comic books for kids and there was a long stretch where there were no comic books for kids at all i mean you could even throw them up an amazing spider-man or even a batman comic because it was just so more adult oriented yeah. I love the fact that there's now an all ages that the comic book industry is actually trying to oh, yeah. embrace more kids. It's so cool because there's a long time that that wasn't part of the, the, the comic book market. Yeah, I think to, to a larger degree, the dis diversification going on in comics right now um, is, is one of the most fun things about it. Like you can be a comic book fan right now and never read a Marvel or DC comic. And that wasn't true when we were young. You sort of had no. to take take what came but you could be a huge comic book reader and only only read middle grade graphic novels you know yeah he he schooled me i'm going back and starting to read more of this stuff because they were so much fun even for as an adult would you agree with that oh yeah definitely yeah i i, I make no distinctions on what i should read as an adult yeah based on I, I, the only time i ever cared about that was ironically when i was a kid i didn't want to read anything aimed at kids <laughs> like, right when I, and I was like i'm not gonna read spidey super stories i'm gonna read spider-man you know well spider-man so, was different back then because it was geared towards a more general audience and then you even you know for a while even in the 90s like oh i can't give a kid an amazing spider-man it's just too much great there's just yeah, too much man. crazy stuff going on you know in the comic yeah. books yeah. um you're right you never have to read a dc and marvel 
if you want to read good comic book, because I believe that we are currently going through another golden age of comic books where there's so much countless stuff out there. Now, and with all the press, and there's so much noise, so many creators, do you think it's harder for new creators and companies to get noticed and get traction? Or how, how do you feel about that? Both as a um, professional and as a fan. I'm of two minds of this. I think it's easier to get your stuff seen now than ever. Um, it's harder to get paid for it now. Um, and was the it was the reverse of that when I started. It was easy to get paid to draw for some small publisher, but there was no guarantee that even 5,000 people would read it. But now you can, you can put a web comic up now and get tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of readers, but not necessarily be able to monetize that right away until you've built up a, you know, a big library and a big following, and then you can monetize it. But it's easy to start a web comic. There's nothing between you and a web comic at all like you can start as long as you can host it somewhere or get on some other site that'll post it um you can be a cartoonist tomorrow if you're willing to just throw it up on the web getting paid making a living at it is harder than harder than that yeah does phil hester the creator have any interest in doing his own independent projects outside of like dc and marvel and even just like a kickstarter for your own yeah I, i do yeah i I also have seen enough of Kickstarter to know that it is a that is a full time job to fulfill a Kickstarter, um, and I don't know if I have the cognitive capacity or re- time resources to to be able to like manage my own Kickstarter. But the whole crowdfunding scene is very exciting to me and uh, something I'm I would definitely explore. I keep saying all that, and then like. I keep getting jobs that I can't say no to and I have to take and they're too much fun to do. But yeah, I feel, I, I feel the itch to get back to like, you know, writing, at least writing indie projects again. I have a problem with reading a lot of mainstream comic books because they seem to be all event driven where a lot of stuff just really doesn't happen. I mean, and I am, don't get me wrong, though. I am the biggest cheerleader for comic books. I want everything to succeed and oh, whatever, you know, but it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, I remember back in the, the just before the onslaught, in the, the, the late 90s, uh, Tom DeFalco and I think it's Paul Ryan, he did a five-year chunk of Fantastic Four yeah. where things, I read, read reread that last year, I'm like, wow, things actually happened to this book, you know, Reed Richards actually supposedly, well, you know, he doesn't die, but he actually was written out of the series for a good chunk of that thing. Yeah. And I miss comic books where things seem to be happening. And spoiler people, the new Flash was like, we might have killed off Iris Allen, but it's like, I'm so jaded now that it's like nothing ever happens in yeah. comic books. And I don't mean to dog comic books or dog your, you know, your profession or anything, but it's just, I want no, I comic know. books that excite me and wow, this is really happening. And I, you know, when the, a year ago with the, the death of Doctor Strange, I'm like, you know what? Clea as the Sorcerer Supreme, that's a good story. But I'm, I'm actually liking that and enjoying that. But it's like, I want to be excited for, for comic books. And do you kind of feel that same way? Not as Paul Hester, the creator, but kind of Paul Hester, the I love comic books. Right. Well, I love comic books regardless. I would love comic I do. books if the yes. superhero genre ceased to exist. Right. Um, but I enjoyed the superhero genre. But um, I think what you're talking about might 
be a function of our age as well. Um, oh, there you go. Bring that age card, Phil. I know. Well, we're I, 55. I'm serious because like what I consider is something that counted and I look back on it, it's usually something that happened between when I was 10 and 20. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's my Spider-Man is, you know, he's a, you know, he's a, uh, he's a college student, you know, uh, Deb Whitman's his girlfriend, you know, <laughs> like that's, right. that's my quote unquote real Spider-Man. Um, and it's nobody else's. And that's, I think the hard thing for people that are lifelong fans, like you or I to grasp is that most people are not lifelong fans. Most people are fans for a couple of years at a time, like for a four or five year window and they might fall off and jump on again same way they have a relationship with like a soap opera or professional wrestling or something like that. They come and go. And so the window that they open onto that character is not very long. Um, you know, I drew green arrow for four years and that's a huge window in comic book time. It is. But since my run on green arrow, there's been many signature runs on green arrow. You know, there's been Jeff Lemire, you know, there's writer after Dan Jurgens. um, you know, there's uh, Benjamin Percy. These all people have come and gone on Green Arrow. And for somebody, they were that window on Green Arrow. For some reader, they were that window. So it's it, it's the creator's job to make that window exciting and fun. And the reason event comics happen is because event comics sell. <laughs> like, love them or hate them, people are buying them. And that's why Marvel and DC are are addicted to them. It's sort of it's sort of like the salary cap in baseball. Um, you know, it, as, as we can't protect the publishers from themselves. They're going to do things that sell. Uh, the comics that we remember fondly are not always the comics that are selling well. Because um, again, we're lifelong fans. We're you. We're strangers in this equation. We're not normal. Um, <laughs> <they're>, they're, <clears throat> They've got to do something that makes somebody that's only been reading comics for four or five years feel excited about. And so for you and I, we see like an, yet another event. We're like, whatever, you know, hey. like, cause like I stopped buying into events after Atlantis attacks. Okay. Like <laughs> that's the age I am. All right. Um, so uh, to you and I, that's tiresome, but to somebody that's only in their four year window, What's the last, you know, before Dark Crisis, there wasn't an event, like if they've only been reading for three years. So that's, a, you know, they, they probably weren't reading during the New 52. To us, the New 52 seems like, Dark Crisis came, seems like it, the New 52 is yesterday to you and me, but it's yeah. not. It was a while I, ago. That's over 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Uh, I do a lot of digital comics and I love these digital services. Do you have an opinion of Phil Hester, creator, or, or even as a fan of some of these digital services? You know, do you like how your, your art translates? Do you like the fact that there's a lot more ability to read comics that you can't normally find, even some of your older stuff? I don't even know what's all on there by you. I'm sorry. But yeah, mm -hmm. how do you feel like both as a fan and as a creator? Because people are always like, you know, when, when DC... Uh, app back in November went to a release like date of one month after publication we are putting it on the app and like oh how are, and like to me 
the digital readers and the store readers are too different and they shouldn't be either or, and they should actually be a gateway to more people yeah. exposure to comic books. I mean, how, how do you feel like, you know, oh man, my start looks really crappy on this digital thing. And but even as a fan of whatever, give me some of your thoughts on that, Bill. I, uh, I'm of two minds of it. I have, I'm a consumer and then I'm also as a creator and as a creator or observer of the industry, whatever, um, it can only be positive. Like the, the more ways you can deliver comics, the better. And they may not be the way I prefer to see a comic, but uh, I, I'm not here to like uh, be down on anyone else's reading experience. No. If that's what it takes for them to get into something, into a character or into a comic, you know, God bless. And I still prefer yeah. to think, see things on paper. Um, I'm again, I, I personally despise guided view. Um, I think it destroys the, the concept of a comic book page. It annihilates it, in fact. Um, and I design pages. I don't design like panels. Yeah, I design pages and the panels fit in the page and they're meant to be for at least a split second viewed as a unit and then delved into as a, as a, as a reader. So guided view destroys that. But if you're some like 14 year old on your phone um, a hundred miles from a comic shop and guided view is the way you learn to read comics, more power to you. Like jump into our world and like uh, sort of get that visual literacy that comic books brings and a whole world can open up to you and, you, and you'll be into all different kinds of ways of comics. Maybe only 1% of them will become that kind of person, that kind of reader. But I'll take as many of those people as I can get. I want to talk about, again, these digital experiences. And I want to talk to Phil Hester, the creator. There are these like these webtoons and Robin has these infinite uh, comic books. And the best way to explain it is they're like a roll of toilet paper. Where, yeah, keep going, yeah. Do you have any interest in trying out that type of style? Oh, yeah, that stuff's exciting to me. Because um, it really is a new art form for comic yeah. books. And I've read some of them. Like, this is some really good stuff. And I give Marvel credit. They dump a ton of that stuff onto their Marvel Unlimited app and some really cool, wonky, great stuff. And I thought, well, you know, would Phil like to do that? You know, like, yeah, I would... I'm not against it. I probably never will. I think it's exciting to experience like those infinite scroll down or, you know, side scroll, whatever. That it's a really cool way to deliver a story. And I would have to really think about that before I did it because I wouldn't, I'd want to do things with that format. I'd want to like inform the story in some way. Um, but I am hardwired to make comic book pages. Like I, I, we just spoke about. Yes. To me, like a page that doesn't, like a comic book, if a page doesn't function as a storytelling unit, I tend, I have, I have a hard time connecting with it. Like with, for all the magnificent artists that work in European comics that are like masters of comic book art, but that French aesthetic of like just stacking strips on top of each other on a page, like is off-putting to me. Like those pages aren't pages to me. They're assembles, assemblages of strips. And so like, uh, I guess I'm I'm like putting myself in a pigeonhole, but like I can't give up that aspect of storytelling, that aspect of designing a page 
um, to me is so integral to like what I see as valuable to, to my expression as a creator that I don't think I can ever abandon that. As a creator, you also started back and I was just going through the, the Gotham, uh, when you're doing it now, you and I both came from a storytelling reading where there was a lot of captions, a lot of word balloons. Do you think that's a lost art or do you think comic books as a medium is better without that? It all, I think that's entirely dependent on talent. I don't like, if you're the kind of writer that writes a lot of captions and it's good, do that. If you're the kind of writer that writes two lines of dialogue in an otherwise silent comic book, do that. Um, if you're good at it. Yeah, it, that's the key. If you're good, whatever you're good at, do. And um, if Does, that means you're, you write very terse scripts, so be it. If it means you write, you know, effusive scripts, do that. Um, do, do you have a preference on scripting when you get a script, whether it's Phil, go do what you want. Go do your Phil magic or Phil, here's how I want the panel laid. How do you feel the creator? I feel the exact same way about it as a creator as I do as a reader. Okay. If, it, if it's a good comic, give it to me any way you can. And if that means you drop a Dallin Moore encyclopedia on me per issue, okay. If it means you drop two typewritten pages and let me lay out the whole book, okay. As long as it's, as long as it's, legit as long as i feel like it's a real honest expression i will get behind it do you have any other projects coming out this year that you can freely talk about no i am so like cash you know, you're like every one of these other creators that i talk to nobody's willing to spill any beans or nothing no, I mean, I, seriously i don't have anything lined up I, yeah. I i am so consumed by gotham city i just have like a, a few pages left of it to go and i'm like I'm starting to feel like Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and into like midair and still pumping his legs. Like, I don't know what's coming after this. And like, this was such an intense experience doing Gotham City was an intense, not only because I feel like the subject matter was really intense, the storytelling of bands were really acute, but is it exciting for Bill Hester to be, to, as a creator and artist, to really be really challenged on this comic book? Yes. And then from the fan point and press point, that this is some of Bill Hester's great work. And I mean, it must feel good that, wow, what I set out to do is actually registering with the public and the readers. Yeah, that that's like... Without getting on a high horse. <laughs> it's very rare to feel that way, but I do feel that way about this book. But um, it was... Also, the, each issue is long. Like each issue is twenty-eight pages. I don't know if people are aware of that, but it's an extra long comic book. And so it's an it's been an intense experience. And I sort of like I came right off of Justice League, helping out on Justice League that was like double shipping, and so they needed help. And I drew a lot of issues of that, and then like a quick fill in on on Blue and Gold, and then right into this. And I sort of feel like I need to step back and. Uh, choose my next thing pretty carefully and but the, but also get serious about writing again and spend a couple months at least developing uh, new writing projects while I decide on what I'm going to draw so do you like to take breaks between projects or do you like to like or has it changed over there like I want to go 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 like you're 20 <laughs> my current age yes I take break. I like to have breaks but like a lot of times what I consider a break is like a week you know um, 
I, and my wife is, my wife's about to retire and from teaching. And she's like, well, I want to retire and go do stuff. And I'm like, I can't retire. Like I got things to do. I've got comics to make and it's going to be tough for me to decide like, okay, I've got to carve out a couple months every year where I'm not working. And to me, that's so weird. Cause like my wife's on me every time we go on vacation, I bring a little work because I can't, I can't stop. And um, maybe I told her I promised to work less, but I'm n- probably never going to stop working. I hope you have enough 20 years left in your career, Phil. I do but- too. But at the end of the my life. Yeah, well, and do you think, let's say, when it's time to put it, the pen it down, will you be ready to put it down and say, you know what, I'm good, I can't do this anymore. It's time to go on to the next phase of my life. Or how does you feel? Or, or, or would be, gosh, I, you know what I mean? I think I'll always, I will always have the urge to like create comics or create fiction in some way. And, but I'm pretty sure there's a time when my physical drawing skills will give out on me before that urge ends, to be real with you for a minute. Yes, um, no, it's, yes. There's going to be like, uh, I've, I've talked with my friends about this and I'm sort of like, every cartoonist hits a point where like the drawing gets too whack, you know, as they get older, unless you're Walt Simonson. Right, yeah. Or there's a there's a you're Joe Kubert. There's a few like unicorns that don't lose a step, but even the great ones lose a step. And uh, I'm not good enough to lose a step and still be presentable. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've talked to I've talked to my close friends, and I'm like, you got to come to me and and like take me aside when I start drawing like an old man. You know? Well, that, saying, hey. Yeah. Again, not to be so dark and grim. But is there a point in time when Phil Hester creators like, yeah, it's time for you to put down the pencil? I mean, do you have that in your set? Or you're just like, I'm not even thinking about that. Why are you bringing up this question in the first place? No, I, just- I think about it all the time. Uh, I still, I feel like I'm still getting better at drawing. But I also know that like there's things beyond my control. Like I, I, I'm on, I'm on uh, two dead people's corneas right now. I'm using other people's corneas. So you feel actually be blessed right now to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky to be working at all. And I had a couple years and I couldn't see it where my work was not up to snuff because. Was there a point in time? Was there a point in time where you thought this is it? I'm done. I'm never drawing again. No, I thought there was like, I might have to take a break and heal. Okay. But as soon as I got my transplants, I was ready to roll again. But I know because of that experience that it's not entirely in my control. There might be come a, there might be a time when arthritis keeps me from drawing or my eyesight com- fails completely. Um, or uh, as what happens to a lot of older artists, you lose a certain, a certain fine point of your depth perception that makes your work begin to look flat and sort of slide off the page. And that that's out of your control. And I've spoken with a lot of my friends. I'm like, you got to tell me when that starts happening to me, <laughs> you know, like and say, Hey, Phil, that's, it's, it's time to back off. Cause I, like I could always back off and just lay out books. That's fine with me. I'd love to, that would please me to no end. Um, and I'll probably always be writing, but there might be a time when I just don't draw well enough to make comics. Did you have 
when you were getting into the industry and, and, and going through the most, did you have a lot of mentors that helped you out? And I know you were talking about Gasper um, and you were mentoring him, him. Do you have a great ambition also like, you know what, I want to help and mentor more creators so they can find their great thing one day. I mean, did you have, you know, the whole yeah. mentor thing? Yeah, I love doing it. And um, I do it for pretty much any young creator I run across if they if they want it. And did you have that fortunate ability to have mentors when you were going through the, you know, the no. days or ever? So no, you were no. just swinging it. Yeah, I was, I was living out in the sticks and I was like, I didn't know a comic book page was bigger than the printed page till I was like, you know, 17 or 18 years old. Um, so I was like feeling my way along. Um, but I think it's important to pass down what you know, or at least your experience to younger creators. And the only field that has ever appealed to me outside of comics is teaching. And I, I feel like I give cogent critiques. Um, I feel like I'm able to back out and, and look at a young artist's work and, and tell what they want to accomplish with that, even if it's not what I would want to accomplish with my work and be able to give them um, salient viewpoints on that. So that's the only, I, I could probably one day back away from comics and go teach, not necessarily even comics, just art in general. But um, yeah, that's the only thing that appeals to me outside of comics, but I love doing it. I love giving portfolio reviews. Phil Hester, I have talked your ear off. You're doing Gotham City Year One. If people have not read it, they're missing out. Do you have any closing thoughts before we end this today? Uh, not really. I just, I'm, I hope to be here. You know, you can come, we can do this again in 20 years when I quit. <laughs> I hope I'm around still doing podcasting. Phil Hester, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you, fantastic comic fan at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.